This is the State of Inclusion podcast, where we explore topics at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and community. In each episode, we meet people who are changing their communities for the better, and we discover actions that each of us can take to improve our own communities. I'm Amy Sanders. Welcome. If you've just discovered the State of Inclusion podcast, you might not know that we're on a journey, a journey to discover what it takes to build more inclusive communities. There are very few communities working harder at this than Charlotte, North Carolina. In all of our discussions, we've discovered that the most progressive communities have multiple equity and inclusion initiatives across their community, as Charlotte does. And these progressive communities are also committed to community building and community conversation as part of their work. Join us as we learn more about community building in Charlotte, North Carolina. So today I'm happy to welcome Janine Bryant. Janine is the Executive Director of the Community Building Initiative, or CBI, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome, Janine. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here with you. So you're fairly new to CBI, assuming the leadership of the organization last year. Yet you've been doing this work a long time, and CBI has been around a long time. So I know that CBI is about to celebrate their 25th anniversary. Congratulations on that. What has CBI been doing for the last 25 years, and and where are you focused right now? So CBI stands for Community Building Initiative, and it was launched in the late 90s with a real key focus on addressing community-involved involvement from a police-involved shooting. And I'm based here in Charlotte, North Carolina, as it's common in this community. A task force emerged that was supposed to help address the needs of our community members as they grappled with what was really rocking our city at the time. And so from that emerged this task force and from the task force emerged six issue teams that were supposed to work on very discrete aspects of rebuilding our community trust. And this is happening simultaneously with the larger issues that were revealed by Bowling for Columbine and our understanding of social capital was really starting to pivot at this time. So CBI emerges into a landscape and when, in which our communities were grappling with a number of many layered issues. And from that came an initiative that was really about giving us space to talk to each other, learn from each other, and to develop our leadership capacity to address change in real time, particularly around racial equity. Over the years, CBI developed a number of signature programs, the first of which, which is well known in our community, called LDI, which is Leadership Development Initiative. That program was about capacity. It was about who our leaders are, how are they connected to each other, and are they asking questions around real change making? Later, they would develop a program called LU40. So that's particularly for leaders under 40. This emergent class of leader in Charlotte is strong. If you know about uh, Charlotte, it is a magnet in the South for growth and change. Even during the pandemic, we had over 60 people a day moving to our community. The standard is between 100 and 130 people moving here a day. And so the real goal here was for us to have an opportunity to talk to each other, learn from each other, relate to each other and create networks and <laughs> to to change the, the literal leadership capacity for the people who are at the top, who are creating the vision. The last is our equity impact circles. So our last program that we see people really taking utilization of 
this program is open to, to folks who want to learn some of the basics, want to learn the language, and want to get exposure to what it means to use the word equity in real time. So those are the signature programs. And of course, we do a bus tour that we've been doing for the last couple of years, which will literally take you around Charlotte to learn about the history and to more deeply understand the geography of Charlotte and how it emerged through policy constraints and some of our key decisions of our leaders, how it's impacted what's happening on the ground. So this is probably a good place to ask you, what do you think community is? How, how do you think of community? And this is a question that I hear often. <laughs> And the simplest answer and the way that I remember to ground myself each time I'm talking to folks is I think of community as the big we. And so I define the the big we by thinking about how intentional are we being when we are, you know, we use the word we, we use the word community all the time, especially in nonprofits, right? But there's an opportunity for us to think about the big we. And for me, that is based on some of my experience as a classroom. I was a classroom teacher. I think before that, when you're when you're growing up, you have you have an understanding of who you are in the community, usually linked to your parents or to what school you go to. But when you emerge and you start your professional journey and you're in and of the community, especially as a as an educator, you start to understand each of these systems is dependent on each other. And education is fundamental to how we disperse and disseminate information. And we have to be so intentional about creating the space for everyone to show up. And I think public education and classrooms are a great example of what that looks like. So that's where I have my first definition of the big we. I was teaching in a what would be considered a high poverty, highly marginalized, very fragile community. And I needed to show up in a way that was both intentional and honest and that held myself to account for what I was doing in that classroom and how I was communicating to parents and students, not just my teacher friends <laughs> and, and the administration. That was my first lesson. I think I could extend my big we to thinking about trust and safety and what does that look like, right? Because ultimately I would leave the classroom and go on to work a museum. And that museum was a history museum, well-beloved in Charlotte. But then I started to understand the context of how did we get here? Some of the decisions that were made had to do with acknowledging harm and moving us towards correcting that harm. That to me, that is fundamental to sustainable community. And then the last one, which is a fairly new concept that I've been grappling with, um, is the intersection of joy and grief in community building. And I talk about this a lot. We, we get an opportunity to experience real joy when we're connected with each other. Uh, but the, the flip of that, the spectrum of that, <laughs> is that joy and grief are on the same, same uh, pendulum swing. And so the only reason that we have such deep grief when we can't be together, like, we, like the pandemic showed us what this looks like, the only reason why we have such deep grief and such a pull towards that is because of the joy we have experienced with each other in connection. And so for me, the big we is us being deliberately conscious around that dynamic ecosystem that we're all a part of and being willing to be intentional, trusting, and joyful in the, in the continuous creation of that community. There is so much to unpack there in all that you said. But I want to ask you a question kind of to extend that in that context that you just shared with us. How then do you think about community building? I, I have a bit of an organizing background. And one of the concepts that I was introduced to early and that I literally campaigned for was around restorative justice. Because I think so often we use, like I said, we overuse a lot of these words 
And the concept of restorative justice begs us, well, who is harmed? Who's the most harmed? And when you use that question to center your intentionality and your safety and your trust building, then you'll understand that you have to address those who are being harmed first. Because if you address those who are already being harmed by the systems and by what you're doing in your community, then I guarantee you're going to help everybody else, right? And so it's not a matter of hierarchy or it's not even a matter of power. It's about, it's really about intentionality. Are you willing to face in ways that create space for people to name their harm and to correct it? Because that restorative justice allows us to build together, right? It allows us to see each other, to see our fallibility, and to be honest about what it takes to build something together. And so when you hear me use the word build, I'm not just talking about uh, a forward future-facing building. I'm talking about reconciling injustice and inequity so that we can, that our foundation is built on something solid and that we actually trust each other. Because too often, I think too, people want to go with, well, we're building community together because we made some new connections and we have new partnerships. I would, I would add, and we understand the historical context that got us here so that we don't keep making the same mistakes. Wow. So there's a lot of things in those conversations we just had. So we talked about trust. Mm-hmm. We talk about understanding and reconciling uh, our past and also forward looking. Mm-hmm. We talk about the relationship we have with one another and the joy that we can find in that. And also the risk or the grief that we have when that does not work as humans as we need for it to. Mm-hmm. So we were talking a moment ago about your conversations that you have in community. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the programs that you have at CBI. Mm-hmm. Clearly, communities can advance and build themselves organically. But how does an organization interject itself into that process and stimulate or support community building, either through these conversations that we were talking about a minute ago or your other programs or something else that you might have in mind? You used a word just a minute ago that I think is, is incredibly important around, like, what, how does an organization do that? It's risky. There's, there's literal risk involved because you're inviting people to examine their own biases as a mechanism to explore how those biases are actually impacting the community and how they're showing up in the community, how they're showing up when we are in together spaces, how they're showing up in policy, how they're showing up in how we treat each other. And that's through any of the systems. And that could be the criminal justice, education, health, equity. And so an organization like CBI, the Community Building Initiative, is really about examining those systems with by providing our key leaders with the knowledge, skills, and courage to act when they once they have the knowledge and, and then the key understanding of like how are these systems playing together? Who am I inside of the system? Once they have that initial knowledge, they really have to then build some skills around it, right? Like it's not that it's not that just knowing it is enough to 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 turn the magic switch and make people suddenly um, behave better with each other. In in fact, there's real skills around listening and dialogue and influence and um, understanding narrative and narrative setting, understanding what it means to interact and collaborate, and also understanding conflict and how conflict shows up and what we need to do to, to mitigate or mediate conflict. So those skills are real. And they, I would say that we've often, most of us in our professional capacities have actually been taught to not have conflict and to, to go in with a power stance, which doesn't actually give much room for listening. So in some ways, CBI helps unlearn some of the ways we've been taught to interact with each other so that we can have the courage 
a CBI alum just said something to me yesterday about psychological safety. So we can have the courage and the psychological safety to confront things when we see them real time, right? So we don't wait until we have another issue. We can be proactively about what it means to support. And it, and like I said at the beginning, it's risky to do this work because it's not just about, this is not a hammer and nails proposition. This is about sustained and ongoing personal organizational and structural investigation so that we can actually build a different way of being together that supports each other. So I love how that echoes back to what you said at the very beginning about creating a space for Mm -hmm. us to share and talk with one another. You know, I recently read Margaret Wheatley's wonderful book called Turning to One Another, and it's all about community conversations. And I was most intrigued, I would say, by your, your work in conversations community conversations. So Margaret in her book says, real change begins with the simple act of people talking about what they care about. And she also says that conversation is the natural way we humans think together. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your equity circles and your community conversations. I'm not familiar with Wheatley's book, but uh, that concept of being able to relate to each other is fundamental to what the work of CBI. And as a person who's been involved in community engagement work, what's fundamentally necessary for us is to be able to see each other in our full and whole selves. And the equity impact circles gives us some language and tools so that people are, Chimamanda Adichie talks about, is resisting that single story. We actually start using a TED talk that she has where she invites people to examine the single story that they're carrying and to resist that by really understanding what stereotypes are informing how you interact with each other. What biases are you literally putting in front of your conversations, in front of how you communicate and interact with each other? And she says, the single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is they're not true, right? Because they're incomplete. And so they make that one story the only story. And so what's essential for us is around understanding who the people are by listening carefully to their stories. So that that notion of using a conversation as a way for humans to naturally link with each other, I think is fundamentally important and true. We talk to each other in our humanity, and that's how we build community. I laugh because I said, you know, if you were living alone in a cave, you wouldn't have to worry about community, right? You wouldn't have to worry about what other people were doing or how you related to them. You would be a singular human. What makes us whole in our humanity is actually our ability to network and relate and connect to each other. That's what makes us humans. Without it, we are just singular individuals existing. So a couple of things that come to mind from that is, one is, practically speaking, what does that look like in these conversations that your community has? And then also, how do you make sure you're including all of the community the whole community so that we see each other fully? That's a great question. And I think what's really critical about that, if I can kind of push into that question a little bit, is that, and and you got to know that I'm coming from a family that has a literal neuroscientist in it. So (laughs) I come from a social science anthropology background. So when I think about the the necessity of building community and and it being an intentional action, For me, those are built upon the cultural constructs that allow us to see each other and have a sustained way of interacting with each other. And so when I think about like, what does that literally look like? Well, it means that people are going to show up fully in themselves. And you got when I say make space, um, this is around 
understanding that we we do not all have the same backgrounds. We we don't all have the same knowledge and skills that we're coming in. And when you create space, you give people the room to show up in the way that they need to so they can actually hear and process the other folks who are also in the room. And that means that those people who feel like they have high expectations get to come in and say their high expectations, even if they're coming from places of perceived privilege. And those people who have been invisibilized also get the space to say what they need to say. And when you're in a shared space like this, and CBI has created the mechanisms for a lot of these spaces, and I've been blessed that in my career, I've been able to partner with and work with organizations just like CBI over the course of 20 years so that these spaces are sacred. And, you know, no one thinks that it's navel gazing when uh, somebody is killed or when somebody is harmed. But when you say, well, let's let's undo undo and unpack what happened to get us there, people will say, oh, we don't, we don't have time for that. Right? And instead, what we do is dig the hole deeper. And then it gets hard, it gets harder and it gets darker down the hole. And it makes it really hard to see that there are any solutions to what we have dug ourselves into a hole from. And so for me, much of this work is around creating the spaces for what I call the aha moment. And I'm an educator by training. So I love to create the spaces where it's not just the knowledge that we have, it's the, the aha moment, the, the moment of surprise and acknowledgement and curiosity that says, oh, I see myself inside of the system. And in these community engagement conversations, those moments happen over and over and over again. And part of the ways we do that is that we're very intentional about creating the container. So as a facilitator, we create we create the container for this, which means that we have to have a set of group agreements that everybody says, I'm going to work with. Right? We have to have a group agreements around what happens when conflict happens. Um, how do we acknowledge it real time in the space? We don't wait. You don't go home and talk to your partner or spouse about it and then say, man, I wish I would have said so-and-so right then, because that was important. You say it right then in the moment. And ultimately what that leads to is a level of accountability that our communities and our individual leaders are often not pressed with. You know, where the idea of accountability and the ability to clarify, like what, what were you thinking was going to happen and did it actually happen? <laughs> we don't take a lot of moments for that. Even when we say we're doing evaluation, who, who are the humans that are making those decisions? And in these kinds of dialogic and facilitated spaces and these kinds of conversations where we are using critical resources to add some evaluatory lens, we get to be owners of our behavior. And in that ownership, we can hold ourselves accountable and we also learn how to hold each other accountable. And that accountability is joyful. And we don't often have that frame for accountability, but it's joyful. So take me into one of these kinds of discussions, just so I can sort of live vicariously through your experiences. So Are you typically doing this in a large group or a small group? You mentioned creating a sort of a a space or a container, but I assume that has a physical environment to it. You also talked about some facilitation. So maybe you can just kind of draw us a picture of like, if we joined you in one of these conversations, what would we experience and what would it be like? That's a great question, because I think some people have these kinds of opportunities all the time and then some people don't get to go into these kinds of spaces or may even be fearful to go into these kinds of spaces. So I'll give you an example. And some of my work has been with CBI, but of course, as I mentioned several times, I've been in and of the Charlotte community for 20 plus years. And so a lot of my work looks like this. And so a typical CBI program is going to have anywhere between 25 to 50 participants in a room. And for, for deep dive work, smaller is better. And typically you're going to be in a space where there is a there is limited hierarchy. So you don't have someone, it's not lecture style. 
it's deliberately created into a space where you know you're going to be communicating with each other. And even the the way in which we situate the room and the way in which we invite you into the space is all considered. So the language that's used, whether we have to translate that language and, and create some spaces for interpretation, even before you come into the space, is very much a part of the overall experience. Once you're in there, we take time to introduce ourselves to each other and to really set the frame. And we build that container. The container I'm talking about is the, the physical space is a part of it, yes. But really it's about the container for the conversation and the dialogue that we're about to have. And the notion that collectively you can learn more than from a single individual when you give space for multiple perspectives to be shared. That the solution that is born from that multiple perspective sharing is always going to be greater than the single perspective. And which is also the value of diversity and inclusion, right? So. What happens in these spaces is there are going to be, okay, I'm going to use some educator language, but there's going to be differentiated access points and an opportunity for people to check in with themselves. So there'll be personal reflection moments. Sometimes that is in silence or with written reflection. There's going to be moments where you are in dialogue with other people, but on small scales. So dyads or triads or quads in which you turn to somebody and you share a very particular poignant moment of personal reflection in a group. And then we look for ways to synthesize that information so that it can be shared with the larger group. So again, we go, we turn back to the 25 to 50 people, you share it back with the larger group. And then from that larger group, <laughs> the facilitator is asked to synthesize a larger, more expansive picture of our knowledge and understanding now that we have shared with each other. And then you reflect on that. So these are cycles of reflection and storytelling and accountability and questioning and curiosity. And we are very intentional about creating these spaces. Most of these are sustained dialogue um, and sustained sessions. So you are with the same group of people for multiple months, sometimes up to a year. In EICs, you go through a five-week course for some of our traditional- What is EIC? Equity impact circle, sorry. So for, for the smaller circles, it's usually a smaller group of 15 to 20 people. You're in that group for five weeks. For the longer, more signature program, you're in that group of 25 to 50 people, and you're in that group for eight months to a year. And this is designed with the understanding that adults take longer to process and learn because they have to unlearn some of those behaviors and those key strategies first before they even try <laughs> to really listen carefully to what they hear going on. And so, but, you know, it can be contentious, right? You can have people who, sit, who are sitting in the room with wildly different opinions, wildly different political perspectives, polarizing thoughts around health equity and vaccines, different understanding of sexual orientation and who is allowed to have, have what in what space. Um, people who refuse and outright will not acknowledge someone else's personhood based on what their faith traditions tell them. And as a facility, we train our facilitators to be able to create the conditions for acknowledgement and mechanisms to help rectify that. And the group is vitally important to maintaining the safety and trust. So the facilitator gives the group the access points and the mechanisms to help course correct in these spaces. One question that comes to mind is, do you start these discussions centered around specific questions or around specific topics? Or how do you kick off this kind of conversation? For most of community building initiatives work, the topics are going to be thematically related to the realities of Charlotte. So we're, if we're going to have a conversation around immigration, we are literally going to invite Charlotteans who have an immigrant experience or immigrant background to come in and talk to us. And they can speak to us in their native tongue or they can speak to us in, in the ways that they feel comfortable with. And that can be through any kind of resource sharing they want to, posters, timelines, PowerPoints, historical background, their personal lived experience. 
And then that serves as a catalyst for internal exploration for uh, folks on the ground. So if we're talking about the indigenous experience here, we're going we're gonna to talk to and listen to and learn from people who have an indigenous identity. If we're going to talk about um, sexual orientation and gender expression, then we're going to talk to people who have um, had experiences and, and are willing to explore those experiences in public spaces. And it's not a public spaces in like, you know, we're not broadcasting it across the news, but this is a public space and we have to create the safety for people to come in and share their perspectives, their stories with us, and then give our participants an opportunity to reflect on did you see yourself in that story? The questions are designed to give them a neutral access point for that and designed to challenge them to think about other people's perspectives and what the, how those perspectives may involve pain or not. Right. So you identify topics that are really critical for Charlotte mm-hmm. in order for the community to grow mm-hmm. and for you to build community. And then you inform those conversations, as you said, with lived experience from people who can bring their own voice to the table, Mm -hmm. and then you use that as a jumping off point for these conversations with the broader community over a period of time. So that allows you to get deeper and deeper as you go. I do have to say that sometimes we have to be more reactionary than that. So for example, when there was a police-involved killing, the CBI was, like I said, born out of a a police-involved shooting. So when when there's police involvement in community harm, that happens as a result in community reactions, we oftentimes create healing spaces so that people can have a space to react, share, and connect with each other in that moment of pain. Again, that is one out of looking at community need and hearing a, a, a request from our stakeholders. We need a space to breathe. We need a space to see each other in our humanity. We need a space to to invite skills around healing as well as skills around addressing and acknowledging harm, right? And so to to create that space, we invite people who who are experts in somatic literacy and people who are experts in understanding full body trauma reactions to help inform what would it look like for us to heal together. And then they, they join us in the space. They help lead our community members in that space. Our last one had 75 respondents and that we it was in a 24 hour window. Basically, people joined us on Zoom. Our hope is to do those more cyclically. And we, we're hearing these from from the public because we need them, right? We Sometimes we need just as much help learning how to heal from each other as we need into raising our collective uh, voices when we see a harm happening. So you have a diverse background and a lot of experiences, plus you're pretty anchored in Charlotte. So I had a question for you about how has your leadership and vision for CBI been aligned with CBI's work? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what it means to take over the helm of an organization that might be going through some transition? What kind of reorientation is needed to take, you know, because a lot of people are coming into mature organizations and trying to increase their focus on equity and inclusion and social justice. And how is that working at CBI? And, you know, what's triggering changes that you guys might be considering? So the beautiful thing about my alignment as a new leader at this organization is that I've already experienced CBI. I was a, I actually attended the LU40 program. I was a part of the second class. So it was a very, fairly new program. What I enjoyed about it is it was pretty fearless. <laughs> it, we were almost immediately asking questions around um, our choices geography, geography-wise, where we had chose, where we selected to live in Charlotte 
And then what were the implications of living and working in that geography or working in two different geographies, two different zip codes or living in two different zip codes? And in a community like Charlotte, as we know across the nation, we have experienced staggering amounts of uh, segregation and displacement and gentrification, which means that we have to ask ourselves the questions like, how are we making very deliberate and, and, de and intentional decisions about where we show up in spaces? So I came into CBI with that background and with that experience of their programming, which was fantastic. And so for me, as a person who, like I said, was a classroom educator and then went on to do education program and dialogic design at a museum, when I came into this space, into this opportunity, it was really important for me to wait and listen first before I espoused a vision of what was next. And my orientation towards listening is born out of some skills around facilitation and uh, listening and ethnography. Because what, what's been true for many nonprofit leaders, I think, and many people who step into the role of leadership, we have constructs around leadership that are really based along, for lack of a better term, the great man theory of leadership. You come in, you have a certain posture that does not involve listening. It involves leading and taking charge. I mean, even the language that we use is oftentimes uh, militaristic and focused on battle and fighting. And for me, if you're talking about building community, well, then you'd have to start with listening and collaboration because those are fundamental to understanding what people need in community. And so it happens that CBI's orientation towards equity lends itself towards, and that was, you know, primarily racial and gender equity when they started, but has now moved in towards other facets of identity and equity. When I came into this role, the vision of the board was really to acknowledge that there is something bold needed in this moment. And that the training and development and signature programs of CBI, while they had created this capacious understanding of what our leadership could look like in Charlotte, what, what they couldn't quite do was map and evaluate the outcomes. And so those of us who are working in spaces that are geared towards inclusion and equity know that if you don't have a, a severe grasp, <laughs> and by severe, I mean like you got to have a tight hold on what outcomes are you actually trying to get to, then you do not move the needle. And so I was invited into this space as a person who has an evaluatory lens, who listens carefully around equity audits and being able to understand and address equity-based strategy that aligns itself to community need. And for me, this is not jargon. This is what I have been practicing. And that looks like understanding the history of a community, understanding the, the policy that lends itself towards justice or not understanding what actions our community leaders continuously take on what patterns and cycles develop in a community, because those become embedded as cultural practices and they become embedded as the way we are. And I'm using air quotes for that, but because it, people will say that's the way we are as if we did not create that. <laughs> and then having the, the fortitude to create some accountability inside of that space. And so I came into this understanding that in the board, their vision for bold leadership was around change making and creating spaces for our stakeholders to have additional skills for accountability when it comes to advocating publicly. And so although CBI doesn't have, we don't have to take on one issue because our stakeholders and those who we have trained are interested in, in affordable housing. They are interested in immigration rights. They are interested in disability rights. They are interested in creating more green spaces. They are interested in small business acumen. They are interested in health equity. So what we need to do is support them. And so the work of that 
is a slight pivot because we're not just supporting them with understanding what that looks like and means and how those systems interact. We're also helping them understand what does accountability inside of the system look like and what does accountability to our communities look like when we are building something together? (laughs) What are the critical questions we need to ask around who has been harmed and how are we correcting that harm? And that's how we start. So that's been the the joy of working with an organization like uh, CBI. And your other question was around like uh, people who are who are starting this work and coming into spaces and wanting to create a, a more intentional equity lens. I would offer that clarity when you're asking people and you're listening to what they say. That clarity can mean that you have some real discomfort. So when you hear a critique of your organization from the community or from the staff or from the stakeholders. You, as a leader, you have to be humble enough and carry that humility with you at all times to hear what people are saying, because there's a reason why they shared that with you. If not, then we would all be clapping for each other. right? So you got to have the, the commitment to, to hear the truth and uh, not just not just the positive truths, but to hear the whole truth and to hold yourself accountable to both the good and the corrections that need to happen when you're in an organization, especially a mature organization. And be sensitive to the fact that you're here and stepping into a foundation. And that foundation is what gives you the critical mass and the people power and the capacity to even do the next step. And so that's what I'm stepping into. Well, it sounds like your board and you as well have a broader vision now mm-hmm. for CBI, mm-hmm. a much bigger vision for CBI. That sounds very exciting. It also reminds me that a couple of years ago, I interviewed Sherry Chisholm, who mm-hmm. is head of leading on opportunity in Charlotte. And one of the things I always look for in communities is, and I'm thrilled to find communities who have several big initiatives going on, because that demonstrates a broad vision, as your board seems to have, and also a willingness to take on a very difficult challenges that the community is facing. So, One of the questions I had for you and thinking about that, because I know there's a lot going on in Charlotte, not just you and Sherry, but there are others who are doing work on equity, inclusion, social justice, economic mobility. So do you guys as leaders in these organizations and these initiatives, do you guys share with each other, coordinate, collaborate, commiserate? (laughs) Do you guys pull together on some of the work that you're doing? We do. In fact, there's members of Sherry, Sherry's team who have been trained in CBI, right? So it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> we are speaking the same language because they've already been trained through this organization that I'm working with. So when I call, and this is a great example, um, we recently created a public-facing survey. So when I called Sherry's team over at Leading on Opportunity and said, Community Building Initiative is doing some work and we would really want, we really want to make sure that our evaluation is strong and we want to make sure that Inside, we have neutralized our language enough so that people can feel like they can critique or, you know, celebrate. We collaborated on that. And this is a way that we can work together really quickly. In the future, we're working on a community-facing symposium. And we are, that's not until the end of the year, closer to November. And already we know that we're partnering with each other and, and gathering resources right now that we'll use as a part of our public programming with the hope that we're going to have hundreds of stakeholders who are involved in a hybrid symposium that is joined by uh, local level and state level expertise. We have plenty of it in Charlotte. So 
typically the part, the good partners uh, in Charlotte are the ones that are willing to, to like I said, wear that, that veil of humility at all times and be willing to, and here's some organizer language for you, but be willing to lock elbows with each other. Because we do have to face the same direction. If we're, if we're orienting ourselves towards justice, we have to face the same direction. <laughs> um, and we can't be all pulling all different directions. And so we do a lot of all three, the collaborating and the commiserating and the celebrating with the real emphasis on not just knowing what our organizations do, but knowing what we are capable of doing. We have some real possibilities in Charlotte and the people here are smart. And this is a highly competitive city. So <laughs> I'm not sure why that is, maybe NASCAR, but uh, <laughs> everybody's in here moving fast, have a lot of good ideas and we, we have to, it takes it takes considerable effort to, to name what it looks like to partner with each other. And we name what it looks like when we're going to have conflict. We name it at the front. We don't wait till we get into the conflict. We, we name it at the front. What do you see as some of the challenges that Charlotte is facing right now and how you see CBI's work in helping to address that? So I've been living in Charlotte for longer than anywhere else I've ever lived. And I've had experience in internationally and lived in other cities and big cities like Houston, Atlanta. And it always seems to me that Charlotte has been waiting to give itself permission to be a big city. And so we use words in uh, even in our in our larger policy frameworks around globalizing and our our commitment to creating an inclusive and global city. And then somehow simultaneously we undermine what it looks like to be an inclusive and globalizing city. And so CBI's work to me is really critical in understanding and learning lessons from other communities. And what my my real hope is is that as we do kind of these next steps and what these notions that are emerging from our public and our stakeholders is that we, CBI is responsible for creating these healthy, compelling and catalyst moments for Charlotte, that, that we are ve- being very deliberate and intentional of creating the, these convening spaces so that the big ideas can emerge and that the, the right people are in the room to hear them. And I feel like CBI has been critical in creating the leadership capacity and the knowledge for that, that now will be dispersed. So we're not talking only to the quote unquote leaders, the C-suite level leaders, but we'll be talking to the people who are across the spectrum and experiencing different socioeconomic conditions, different educational levels, different kinds of health challenges, and letting them inform these the, the, the next thing. They are the, the people who are helping us create the big ideas and the collaboration. And I think that's a real key challenge for Charlotte, because once we give ourselves the permission to do it right, I feel like Charlotte will once again, as historically has been a model for quite a few social capacity building strategies, including public school busing strategies and education strategies, I feel like, and some immigration strategies, actually, uh, more recently. And Charlotte can be a model for other kinds of strategies as well. Before we wrap up, I wanted to see if there was anything else that you wanted to touch on or talk about or share that we haven't talked about. I'm excited to have conversations like because it also helps me think about ways in which a community is truly built. Because we can, like I said, we can overuse some of the language and and the reality is we've been taught not to collaborate with each other and we've been taught not to see each other. And we've been taught to look at change making as destabilizing and disruptive. And I think if anything that we can learn from this moment of after after many years of radical change in our communities and our political landscape and our health is that we 
the collect the big we are the ones that can make the changes to support each other. And it doesn't have to be the wait for a generation. It might be. But the reality is that we can start to do some of these things right now. And the one the one thing that we can always start to do is listen carefully to each other. And from that listening, we can care about each other's even if our, even if, if the perspective is different, we can still care about each other. And like I said, once you do the listening and the caring, the bigger solution when you have multiple perspectives in the room is always better. I love that, that we should listen to each other, we care about each other, and then live into today the changes that might take us a generation to realize, but we can begin to live into those today. Absolutely. Thank you, Janine Bryant, for talking with us and for your work in Charlotte. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to the State of Inclusion. As I listened to Janine talk about the signature programs of CBI, I was taken back to how the seed for State of Inclusion was planted during my own involvement in a diversity and equity leadership program. And it reminded me that the ripples and impacts of programs like CBI's can go on for years. I especially enjoyed the rich and insightful discussion that Janine and I had around community conversations. One of the things we hear over and over again in our discussions is that on this journey to create more inclusive communities, relationships are everything. Building or rebuilding trust is fundamental and community conversations are necessary to prepare the community ground within which seeds of equity and inclusion can grow and flourish. Janine reminded us that building community is not easy and it's not without risk. It's not only a forward-looking process, but it also requires us to understand and acknowledge our past. We have to realize who has been and is being harmed and be willing to work through conflict that comes up. She shared a little bit about how Charlotte accomplishes this kind of work, how they create containers for conversation, design interventions, facilitate difficult conversations, and when needed, support community healing. Janine reminded us that it's important to listen to and care for each other. I'm all in for that. Perhaps the most important takeaway for me was the reminder that in this work, where some change may take a generation to realize, we can still begin to live into these changes today. We don't have to wait a minute longer to begin to build a more inclusive and equitable future for our community. And to borrow a phrase from Charles Eisenstein, to begin today to build the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. This has been the State of Inclusion podcast. Join us again next time. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best compliment for our work is your willingness to share these ideas with others. So leave us a review. We'd love your comments. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.